My name is Erin Lasley. I've traveled many different roads in my life. I've been a law enforcement officer and first responder in the United States Coast Guard. I've worked in a couple of psychiatric hospitals, but now I'm a professional historian and podcaster. I've also had an interest in true crime for most of my life. In this podcast, I study some of the most notorious crimes through the lens of a historian and analyze what may have inspired criminals, investigators, and even society during the commission of those crimes and investigations. Join me as we look into the history behind the crime. Hey everyone, welcome to the second season of the history behind the crime. I am so glad you are listening and I am thrilled to start the second season adventure with you. This season, we will explore murder, war, terrorism, mobsters, and so much more. I also have a few special guests planned who are so much smarter and talented than I will ever be. Before we get into this episode's crime and history, I want to give a special shout out uh, to two very special listeners. Two listeners I thought would never listen to my podcast and it makes me pretty nervous knowing that they do my brother jake and my brother-in-law brad these are two men i never expected would listen to true crime or history podcasts let alone mine but they do voluntarily which blows my mind these are two guys i really look up to and i'm always a little nervous talking to them because their life experiences greatly exceed mine they are also two of the smartest men i know and I'm not just saying that because one used to beat me up as a kid and the other one is a retired army guy who only needs to know one way to kill a man. And coincidentally, they both get a little bit too happy around pyrotechnics. Anyway, I am really touched they both tune in to listen to their little sister drone on about history and crime. And I am thrilled they both enjoy the podcast. And without any further delay, Let's get this party started. When it comes to crime and punishment, I sometimes wonder who the real victims are. Obviously, the ones who were offended against are victims, as are the families of both the victims and the offenders. But can the offenders be victims too? Victims of the state? When does punishment against offenders become vengeance instead? In last season's episode, Satanic Panic, we talked a lot about society losing their ever-loving minds, thinking there was a satanic cult around every corner, luring blonde virgins to their deaths. As a result, scores of innocent people were tried for crimes they didn't commit, as was the case with the West Memphis Three, and crimes that never happened as was the case with the McMartin preschool scandal. Society wasn't out for justice, but their fear demanded vengeance. The same thing happened in the 1950s, but society didn't fear satanic cults per se. They feared communism. It was called the Red Scare, and it inundated almost every level of US society, including schools, Hollywood, churches, 
the government, and even the justice system. While satanic panic ran amok for only about a decade and a half, the Red Scare lasted for nearly a century, though it peaked in the 1950s. In fact, today, U.S. politicians still use communism to try to scare the American public against their opponents and policy they dislike. But much like the satanic panic, people were also falsely accused and tried for crimes they didn't commit during the Red Scare. Some lost their lives for crimes that today would just warrant a prison sentence. When it comes to communism, where to start? Yeah, you know, I suppose I can reach back to Germany in the 1800s and tell you all about Karl Marx. But to be honest, Marx and Marxist theory always bored me in college. I learned the most about communism in my modern Germany and modern, modern Russian history classes. But early communism always made me want to gouge my eyes and eardrums out. Sorry, Dr. Vovchenko. We're not even going to discuss the definition of communism, because quite frankly, if you don't know what communism is, you need to research it. We're not even going to discuss how communism gained ground in the U.S. in the 1910s or that famous Americans like Woody Guthrie, W.E.B. Du Bois, and J. Robert Oppenheimer were all members of the Communist Party at one time. Okay, we'll talk a little bit about Oppenheimer, but that's because of what he did rather than because of his political beliefs. As I said before, the Red Scare lasted almost a century, and there is a lot of history to unpack there. Simply to say, the U.S. was leery of communism before World War II, but it got really concerned after the war. Before World War II, the Soviet Union really wasn't a friend of the United States. There was some trading going on and American businessmen and their families traveled to the Soviet Union because there were economic opportunities there, strangely enough. But overall, the United States government wanted to keep the commies out of the United States. There was even a lot of anti-communist rhetoric in the early days of World War II when Stalin and Hitler were allies. But after Operation Barbarossa, when Germany invaded the Soviet Union, the U.S. decided to help out Stalin because they hated Hitler more. That's not to say the U.S. got all buddy-buddy with the Reds, but the U.S. and the USSR became more like frenemies. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Even during the many conferences between Stalin, Churchill, and FDR, and later Truman, Churchill, FDR, and Truman always played it careful around Stalin because they didn't trust him or communism. While all this was going on, something big was happening in the United States with the full support of both the Canadians and the Brits, the Manhattan Project. As we all know, or should know, the Manhattan Project was the super-secret nuclear program in the United States that developed the first atomic bomb. Robert Oppenheimer and his team of physicists and others quietly built and tested the first atomic weapon in Los Alamos, New Mexico, 
before it was used twice on Japan in 1945 in World War II. In my professional historical opinion, not only was the bomb used to force Japan out of the war, but it was also used to scare the shit out of the Soviets. Truman and his advisors weren't stupid. The carving up of Europe had already started, and the U.S. and other Western allies had already agreed to it in exchange for Stalin's continuing support to defeat Hitler. The Allies also knew the old phrase, you give a mouse a cookie, he's gonna want a glass of milk too. Or is that a relatively new phrase? They knew Stalin wouldn't be content to control just Eastern Europe, and they hoped the awesomeness of the A-bomb would make him think twice about extending his reach further. By the time the war ended, the U.S. shifted its focus from battling the Germans and the Japanese to rebuilding Europe and containing communism. Indeed, the Marshall Plan was enacted to not only rebuild a Europe devastated by yet another world war, but to also pretty much bribe European countries not to pursue communism or become allies with the Soviet Union. Japan and Germany were the enemies of yesterday. The Soviets were the new enemies, and Truman's 1947 speech to Congress cemented the us versus them mentality and would later be known as the Truman Doctrine, or more commonly known as communist containment. It should be noted that by this time, even Oppenheimer's security clearance had been yanked because he was accused of being a communist. Enter the Red Scare. In March 1947, Truman signed Executive Order 9835, creating the Federal Employees Loyalty Program, establishing political loyalty review boards who determined the Americanism of federal government employees and requiring that all federal employees take an oath of loyalty to the United States government. Today, we take an oath to defend the Constitution. It then recommended termination of those who had confessed to spying for the Soviet Union, which was pretty much a duh, as well as some suspected of being un-American. And that could be anything from not being a Christian to being gay. This led to more than 2,700 dismissals and over 12,000 resignations from the years 1947 to 1956. In the early 1950s, American leaders repeatedly told the public that they should be fearful of subversive communist influence in their lives. Communists could be lurking anywhere, using their positions as school teachers, college professors, labor organizers, artists, or journalists to aid the program of world communist domination. This paranoia about the internal communist threat reached fever pitch between 1950 and 1954, when Senator Joe McCarthy of Wisconsin launched a series of highly publicized probes into alleged communist penetration of the State Department, the White House, the Treasury, and even the United States military. The Congressional House Committee of Un-American Activities, yeah, I shit you not, that's what it was really called, 
They investigated supposed communist rings and threats within American society and government. In 1947, the committee held nine days of hearings into alleged communist propaganda and influence in the Hollywood movie industry. Ten screenwriters and directors refused to answer questions and were convicted of contempt of Congress. They became known as the Hollywood Ten and were blacklisted by the entertainment industry. Eventually, more than 300 artists, including directors, radio commentators, actors, and particularly screenwriters, were boycotted by the studios. Even Charlie Chaplin, Orson Welles, and others left the United States or went underground to find work. What's really sad about this is that Chaplin wasn't a communist. He was very much anti-poverty, and he was a fan of FDR's New Deal, but that didn't make him a communist. In 1947, he said, My prodigious sin was and still is being a nonconformist. Although I am not a communist, I refuse to fall in line by hating them. Chaplin moved to Europe and didn't return to the United States until 1972, when the Academy of Motion Pictures gave Chaplin an honorary award for lifetime contribution to film. He received a 12-minute standing ovation at the Oscars. The whole thing pissed off J. Edgar Hoover. But I beg the question, what didn't piss off J. Edgar Hoover? And then there's Joseph McCarthy. Here's what you should know about him. He was a junior senator from Wisconsin who wanted to make a name for himself. He did this by claiming in 1950, commies had infiltrated almost every public office and he had a list of real communists in the United States. Although he provided little or no evidence, it still prompted the Senate to call for a full investigation. By the way, if you came afoul of him, he would put you on his list. This also prompted Congress to pass the McCarran Internal Security Act of 1950, which was very much unconstitutional. The act required communist organizations to register with the United States Attorney General's office and establish the Subversive Activities Control Board to investigate persons suspected of engaging in subversive activities or otherwise promoting the establishment of a totalitarian dictatorship, either fascist or communist. The act allowed the government to dig into people's personal lives, your personal life, like how often you walk the dog during the day, and also allowed them to dig into financial businesses, barred individuals from federal jobs, and even prosecute them solely based on membership under the Smith Act due to the expressed and alleged intent of the organization, aka guilt by association. The act also contained an emergency detention statute. You're going to love this. It gave the president the authority to apprehend and detain, quote, each person as to whom there is a reasonable ground 
to believe that such person probably will engage in or probably will conspire with others to engage in acts of espionage or sabotage. Folks, I will more than likely break the speed limit in the future, so I guess that means I better go ahead and get my ticket now. Thankfully, this was overturned by the Supreme Court, but not until the 1970s. Basically, you were looked at funny or investigated if you were not a Christian or straight, and God forbid you ever said anything negative about the government. Even Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and other civil rights leaders were accused of being communists. Okay, some of them really were, but most were labeled communists, not because of their ideological beliefs, but because they had said some pretty harsh things about the government. Needless to say, Americans saw a communist behind every tree, and they were even more scared after China and North Korea fell to communism. Every night on the radio and every night on TV later, it was McCarthy and communism all the time. And you didn't know who to trust. Of course, that's not to say that there weren't real communist spies in the United States. The Manhattan Project was so secret, Truman didn't even know about it until after FDR died and Truman became president. Project managers feared the Germans would find out. Military leaders, FDR, and then Truman feared Stalin would get the bomb. The Manhattan Project was the best kept secret during the war. Maybe a few dozen people actually knew the full extent of the project, while a couple of thousands of people worked on the project, but didn't know that they were helping to build an atomic weapon. However, no matter how hushed-hushed the project was, there were spies among them. Soviet spies. According to the U.S. Department of Energy, there were a number of Soviet spies on the fringes of the project. According to my research, there were no Soviet spies within the few dozen people who had complete knowledge of the project. These spies knew something was a brewing, but they didn't know just what. These spies were both American and British, mostly communist or had communist affiliation, and mostly approached the Soviet government for ideological reasons rather than the Soviets approaching them with the offer of money, though most of them did profit with monetary compensation. One of these spies was David Greenglass. Greenglass was the son of Russian and Austrian immigrants and joined the young communist lead in New York with his wife Ruth in 1942. In 1943, Greenglass joined the army and, end, and ended up working as a machinist first at the uranium enrichment facility at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and then at the Los Alamos Laboratory in New Mexico. Whether he knew it or not, Greenglass was working on the Manhattan Project. But how did he pass a background check if he was a communist? He lied. This was a time before the internet to hide your identity 
All you had to do was fudge some paperwork and get your friends to lie for you. And Greenglass's friends did lie for him. He didn't do all this because he was a spy, but because he just wanted to hide the fact that he was a member of the Communist Party. Remember, Oppenheimer had been a communist too, and he was the project developer of the atomic bomb, but he wasn't a spy. Nevertheless, Greenglass was in the perfect position to help out his brother-in-law, who was a Soviet spy. Julius Rosenberg was also the son of Russian immigrants and had also joined the Young Communist League in New York. Side note, there was an increase of Russian immigrants in the late 1800s and early 1900s to the United States and Western European countries. Many of these immigrants were Jewish and fled Russia due to the Russian Empire and then Soviets' mistreatment of the Jewish people. Most of these immigrants and their children became ardent American patriots and would go on to fight for the U.S. in World War II and then the Korean War. Greenglass and Rosenberg do not represent the majority of Jewish immigrants who adopted their new country and faithfully served it. Back to the story. Rosenberg met Greenglass's sister, Ethel, in 1936 at the Young Communist League, and the two got married shortly after. Ethel stuck by Julius' side when he joined the Army Signal Corps, when he became an Army Engineer Inspector, and also when he was kicked out of the Army because, oops, he wasn't as good as hi at hiding his Communist intentions as well as his brother-in-law. Unlike Greenglass, Julius Rosenberg was recruited by the Soviets to use his position in the army to spy. And it seems Rosenberg was only too happy to pass along secrets and pocket a little extra money he earned from his surreptitious activities. He was also eager to recruit his wife Ethel, Greenglass, and Greenglass's wife Ruth into his little spy ring. Greenglass and Ruth had been given the codenames Caliber and Osa by the Soviet NKVD, the People's Commiserate for Internal Affairs, a.k.a. the Soviet Secret Police. Rosenberg was originally recruited to spy for the Interior, for the interior Ministry of the Soviet Union, NKVD, on Labor Day 1942, and not only passed secrets to his handler, Alexander Feklazov, but also recruited other people in sensitive positions within the United States military and government. Aside from the green glasses, Rosenberg recruited engineers, Nathan Sussman, Joel Barr, Alfred Sarant, and Morton Sobel, a military aviation scientist, William Pearl, a civil design engineer, Russell McNutt, and many others. Greenglass passed Rosenberg information about the high explosive lenses being developed at Los Alamos for the implosion bomb and worked with Klaus Fuchs, a physicist at Los Alamos and a Soviet spy as well, to pass on atomic research secrets. Barr and Sarant, 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 we'll go with Sarant, gave the USSR over 9,000 pages of documents detailing over 100 weapon systems. Sobel passed along radar and artillery plants. Pearl 
coughed up a complete set of design and production drawings for Lockheed's P-80 shooting star, which was the first U.S. operational fighter jet. McNutt contributed structural designs and blueprints of the Oak Ridge facility to the NKVD. McNutt's employment provided access to secrets about processes for manufacturing weapons-grade uranium, which is probably the most important step to building an atomic weapon. All the while, Ethel Rosenberg may have aided her husband in his spy ring, and Ruth Greenglass used her apartment as a photography lab to copy the documents passed on to the Soviets. This was a pretty significant spy ring Rosenberg had created. And though none of these men and women had access to completed plans of the, of the atomic bomb, their espionage enabled the Soviets to develop the bomb that much quicker. The Soviets successfully tested their first nuclear device called RDS-1, or First Lightning, codenamed Joe-1 by the United States, on August 29, 1949. Listen, the U.S. government knew that spy stuff was going to happen and developed the Venona Project. The Venona Project was a counterintelligence program started during World War II by the United States Army's Signal Intelligence Service and was later absorbed by the National Security Agency, the NSA. And it ran from 1943 until 1980. It was intended to decrypt messages transmitted by the Soviet Union's NKVD and the KGB. During the 37-year duration of the Venona Project, the Signal Intelligence Service decrypted and translated approximately 3,000 messages. The intelligence yield included discovery of the Cambridge Five espionage ring in the UK, which you guys should really look up and also Soviet espionage of the Manhattan Project. The Venona Project remained secret for more than 15 years after it concluded. Some of the decoded Soviet messages were not declassified and published by the United States until 1995. And you want to know what was in some of those declassified messages? Lots of Rosenberg stuff. However, it wasn't the Venona Project that cracked the spy ring or even United States intelligence agents that caught wind of Rosenberg. It was the British MI5 who smelled a rat and started to investigate Klaus Fuchs, the Los Alamos physis physicist who, after the war, relocated to the UK, who were also wary of Soviet spies. Under interrogation by MI5 in January 1950, Fuchs dropped the dime on a man named Harry Gold, who also passed sensitive U.S. military information onto the Soviets. MI5 was kind enough to pass the intelligence along to the FBI, who quickly identified the Greenglasses and Rosenbergs as Soviet spies after an investigation. Whether to protect his wife's brother or to get rid of a witness, Rosenberg gave Greenglass $5,000 to skip town and head to Mexico when they found out that Fuchs had been caught by MI5. 
instead of hightailing it down south, David and Ruth sought advice from a lawyer instead, which benefited them in the long run. And the FBI eventually caught up with David Greenglass in June 1950. Here's the funny thing about family. Some will lie, cheat, and steal for their kin. Some will go to their graves without ever having betrayed blood. Some will take the heat to keep their family out of prison. David Greenglass lied to protect his wife and his sister, but he gave up Julius quicker than a knife fight in a phone booth. He told authorities Rosenberg enlisted him to spy, and Rosenberg passed along secrets to the Soviets through his handler, Feklazov. The FBI picked up Julius in July 1950, and seeing how this was the McCarthy era and obviously anything went, they arrested Ethel too to try to force a confession out of Julius. Gordon Dean, the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, said, quote, It looks as though Rosenberg is the kingpin of a very large ring, and if there is any way of breaking him by having the shadow of the death penalty over him, we want to do it. Miles Lane, a member of the prosecution team, said that the case against Ethel Rosenberg was not too strong, but that it was, quote, very important that she be convicted to and given a stiff sentence. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover wrote that proceedings against the wife will serve as a lever to make Julius talk. Guess what? Neither one opened their traps. I got the following information from the Atomic Heritage Foundation. Greenglass secretly testified before a grand jury in August 1950. In this testimony, he named Julius and claimed he was recruited to join the Soviet spy ring by him. He stated that Julius asked him to help provide secrets about atomic weapons so that Julius could pass on the information to the USSR. He then claimed he passed this information to Julius on a New York street corner and that Ethel was not involved. He affirmed, I said before, and I say it again, honestly, this is a fact. I never spoke to my sister about this at all. Due to Greenglass's August 1950 testimony and no tangible evidence, there was a weak case against Ethel for her, for her alleged involvement. Despite this, the government still decided to prosecute her alongside Julius in hopes that Julius would confess. Just 10 days before the start of the Rosenbergs trial in February 1951, David Greenglass retestified and changed his original statements. This new testimony, now against Julius and Ethel, was a part of a deal granted to the Greenglasses. In exchange for this new testimony, Ruth was permitted to remain with their children and care for them. The Greenglasses, both of them, now claimed that Julius, with help from Ethel, recruited David into the atomic spy ring in 1944 when he was working at Los Alamos. They claimed that David gave a sketch and description of an atomic bomb to Julius in September 1945. This bomb was Little Boy, dropped on Nagasaki in August 1945. 
Now, however, Greenglass claimed that this exchange occurred in the living room of the Rosenberg's New York apartment and that Ethel was present. They stated Ethel was present during all the meetings, typing notes for Julius. Because of this testimony, no charges were filed against Ruth, who probably had a bigger part to play in the spy ring than Ethel did. On March 6, 1951, the trial began in New York's Southern District Federal Court. The trial lasted for only about a month. The Rosenbergs were charged with conspiracy and providing atomic secrets to the Soviets. They could not be charged for treason since technically the United States was not at war with the, United, with the USSR. Judge Irving R. Kaufman presided over the trial. He opened the trial by stating the following. The evidence will show that the loyalty and alliance of the Rosenbergs and Sobel, who was tried with the Rosenbergs, were not to our country, but that it was to communism. Communism in this country and communism throughout the world. Sobel and Julius Rosenberg, classmates together in college, dedicated themselves to the cause of communism. This love of communism and the Soviet Union soon led them into a Soviet espionage ring, end quote. Which is a pretty damning statement to make at the beginning of a trial and would be major cause for an appeal today. During the trial, both Ethel and Julius pleaded the Fifth Amendment when asked repeated questions related to espionage and when questioned about being members of the Communist Party. Not answering these questions, however, proved to be problematic for the Rosenbergs because during the era of McCarthyism, many believed that the refusal to answer questions was an admission of guilt and involvement with the Communist Party. Ethel and Julius denied all allegations of espionage and refused to provide any names. On March 29, 1951, the court convicted Julius and Ethel Rosenberg of conspiracy to commit espionage. On April 5th, Judge Kaufman sentenced them to death and sentenced Sobel to 30 years in prison. Some reports claim that the Rosenbergs were offered a plea deal where admittance of their guilt would grant them a prison sentence. David Greenglass received a 15-year prison sentence and was released in 1960. In early 1953, he wrote a letter to President Eisenhower requesting that Ethel and Julius's sentences be commuted to prison. This request was denied. Judge Kaufman justified his, de his decision for the death penalty by stating, quote, I consider your crimes worse than murder. I believe your conduct in putting into the hands of the Russians the A-bomb years before our best scientists predicted Russia would perfect the bomb has already caused, in my opinion, the communist aggression in Korea, with the resultant casualties exceeding 50,000, and who knows how many millions more of innocent people may pay the price for your treason. Pretty much, he laid both the Soviet success with building an atomic bomb and the Korean War at the Rosenbergs' feet. The trial of the Rosenbergs produced 
mixed reactions among the public. Many Americans who were politically left-wing believed the Rosenbergs were persecuted solely for their past involvement with the Communist Party. Even J. Edgar Hoover cringed at the verdict, not because he believed the Rosenbergs were unfairly punished, but because the execution of Ethel, a young mother, would reflect bad on the FBI and justice system. In fact, while half of America was ready to fry Julius Rosenberg, not that many people felt the same about Ethel. Yeah, she was a young woman and people in the 1950s still believed you shouldn't execute a woman. But many believed she wasn't as guilty as Julius was. Many popular figures came out to support the Rosenbergs and beg for a prison sentence instead of death. Pablo Picasso implored the U.S. to stop this crime against humanity. And Pope Pius XII appealed to President Eisenhower to spare the couple. But Eisenhower refused. The Rosenbergs' appeals quickly made its way through the court system. But both Eisenhower and the U.S. Supreme Court refused to get involved. The Rosenbergs were even made a deal. Confess and give up the names of others and your lives will be spared. Which is an abhorrent deal and one that is so illegal today. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg will die in the electric chair at Sing Sing Prison tonight. Warden Denno said earlier that the executions would begin at 8 p.m. daylight time. That's within the next 15 minutes. We're told that the President and Attorney General Brownell are standing by in the event the Rosenbergs want to make a clean breast of it. Federal Judge Kaufman, who sentenced the couple to death, is still in his chambers to deal with any possible last-minute developments. The execution time was set after the Supreme Court and the President refused to intervene. At noon, the court announced that it had decided to set aside the stay of execution previously ordered by Mr. Justice Douglas. Chief Justice Vinson read the decision for his colleagues Reed, Jackson, Burton, Clark, and Minton. Justices Douglas and Black insisted that the Douglas stay of execution should remain in effect until a closer examination had been made of legal factors. Mr. Justice Frankfurter said that he felt that more time was necessary for counsel on both sides to study and argue what he called the complicated and novel questions raised before the court yesterday. But for the majority, Chief Justice Vinson said, the court does not doubt that Mr. Justice Douglas had the power to issue a stay in the first place. Douglas questioned whether a 1946 Atomic Secrets Act rather than a 1917 Espionage Act applied to the Rosenberg case. He saw this as a, as a substantial question of law. But Chief Justice Vinson said the majority of the court believes no substantial question of law exists. Therefore, the court decided to reverse the Douglas stay of execution. But Douglas, dissenting, said, I know in my heart I am right on the law, and therefore I see my duty. No man or woman, he said, should go to death under an unlawful sentence. And Mr. Justice Black criticized what he called the judicial haste of the court. He said it's particularly out of place where the death sentence is concerned. Black suggested that a less harsh sentence would seem proper because of the conflict between the two laws in question. He also said he had not had the time to consider the legal question involved. After the majority decision was made public, lawyers for the Rosenbergs unsuccessfully sought a new stay and made yet another motion for reconsideration of the case. After this was turned down, the Rosenberg lawyers tried in vain to get Justice Black, Jackson, Burton, and Frankfurter to stay the execution. Then an appeal for clemency was made to the president, and for a second time he said no.
Mr. Eisenhower issued a statement which said in part, By immeasurably increasing the chances of atomic war, the Rosenbergs may have condemned to death tens of millions of innocent people all over the world. The execution of two humans is a grave matter. But even graver is the thought of millions of dead whose deaths may be directly attributable to what these spies have done. In the end, neither Julius or Ethel gave up the names of co-conspirators. On June 19, 1953, at Sing Sing Prison in New York, Julius died in the electric chair after the first electric shock. Ethel's execution was horrible. After she was given the normal course of three electric shocks, attendants removed the strapping and other equipment, only to have doctors determine that Ethel's heart was still beating. Two more electric shocks were applied, and at the conclusion, eyewitnesses reported that smoke rose from her head. They were disgusted by the inhumane execution. The Rosenbergs were the only American civilians executed for espionage during the Cold War. Later on, the Venona Project revealed Julius Rosenberg certainly was a prolific Soviet spy. But while Ethel knew about her husband's scheming and may have approached her brother to spy, she knew of little else. The Soviets hadn't even given her a code name as they had for Ruth Greenglass. David Greenglass even admitted, admitted later on that he lied to protect his wife because she was more important to him than his sister. In a 2008 interview, co-defendant Morton Sorbell said that while Ethel knew of Julius's spying, she took no part in it. Deputy Attorney General of the United States, William P. Rogers, who had been a part of the prosecution of the Rosenbergs, discussed their strategy at the time in relation to seeking the death sentence for Ethel. He said they had urged the death sentence for Ethel in an effort to extract a full confession from Julius. He reportedly said she called our bluff as she made no effort to push her husband into any action. The Rosenberg's two sons were orphaned and no one in the family would take them in. They ended up in a children's home and were eventually adopted by social activist Abel Maripol and his wife Anne. Abel Maripol had written the song Strange Fruit, originally performed by Billie Holiday. The following conclusion is also from the Atomic Heritage Foundation. Contrary to popular belief, there was no concrete secret behind the atomic bomb. The discovery of fission in 1938 meant that a nuclear chain reaction was possible and that the energy produced from this process could be used to produce a weapon of unusual force. Physicists like J. Robert Oppenheimer, Enrico Fermi, and Leo Szilard knew that it was only a matter of time before other countries were able to develop their own atomic weapons. The only secret behind the bombs lay in their specifications, the material composition, and inner workings. Any government with the determination and the resources to develop an atomic weapon could do so just within a matter of time. When Klaus Fuchs' espionage was discovered in 1950, many people believed his actions had been essential to the Soviet bomb. 
Fuchs did pass along important information about the bomb's design and technical specifications. And the Congressional Joint Committee on Atomic Energy concluded that Fuchs alone has influenced the safety of more people and accomplished greater damage than any other spy, not only in history of the United States, but in the history of nations. However, there was much debate surrounding the role of espionage in the Soviet Union's atomic program. Scholarship suggests that Soviet spying probably allowed the USSR to develop a to develop an atomic bomb six months to two years faster than they would have if there had been no espionage. So who's the victim in the case? Certainly the American people who were victimized not only by Soviet spies, but the Red Scare as well. The two Rosenberg sons were also victims because they lost the two people who loved them the most. But could Ethel be considered a victim? Her brother and sister-in-law's crimes were so much more egregious, but while she was put to death, her brother only spent a few years in prison, and Ruth was left off the hook entirely. Was the U.S. government not only the victim in this case, but also the offender? You tell me. On a personal level, I can only say that I'm a patriot. There is a reason why military projects can be highly classified. They are classified not only for the sake of national security, but to also protect the lives of Americans and even our allies. There's been a lot in the news lately about former presidents and vice presidents keeping classified documents in their homes and a young Air National Guard airman airing national secrets on social media. Each and every time I palm slap my forehead because it is so easy to not take classified stuff home with you and to keep your mouth shut. People, loose lips sink ships. On this episode, I want to present to you the case of Tammy Jackson because her murder was so horrific and it remains unsolved. It was brought to my attention by Cheryl McCollum, who is an American crime analyst, author, and founder and director of the nonprofit Cold Case Investigative Research Institute based in Atlanta, Georgia. On the morning of January 26, 1994, Construction workers found the body of 17-year-old Tammy Jackson on Hutchinson Island in Savannah, Georgia. Tammy had been stabbed 130 times with two different weapons. She had been hogtied with a rope threaded through her belt loops and had been run over several times by a vehicle. The evening before her body was discovered, Tammy went to a convenience store at 7 p.m. A cable technician saw that she appeared to be agitated while speaking with two men in a car who were never identified. The cable technician was in the parking lot and approached to ask if she was okay. She answered that she was and he left. It was the last time anyone but her killer or killers saw her alive. At the time of her death, Tammy had been kicked out of her family's home and was living with her older boyfriend in his apartment. He was out of town on military orders during the time of her murder, and she was staying with a married couple who were friends of her boyfriend. 
If you have any information about Tammy's murder, please contact the Savannah Police Department's Cold Case Unit at 912-525-2799. If you feel uncomfortable speaking directly to law enforcement, you can reach out to me at thehistorybehindthecrime at gmail.com or message me through Instagram at thehistorybehindthecrime. Someone out there knows something. You may not, but you may know people in Georgia who do. Share Tammy's story with them. I guess this episode was more history for most people rather than crime, but I still enjoyed researching it. Hopefully you enjoyed listening to it. If you have a crime you would like me to historically analyze, or if you just want to say hey and share some feedback, give me a holler. I love hearing from you guys. One last shout out, this time to my ladies in pink who I met at my neighbor Travis's birthday party. You three were a riot and I can't wait to hang out again. And thank you, Travis, for making me feel famous. You, you, my friend, are awesome. I will be back next time with a heart-wrenching tale that will make your blood boil. Until then, do me a favor. Take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Later. Later.